Um, so happy you guys are here this morning. Uh, I know it was a little tough getting here for some of you, um, but man, I'm happy you guys are here. It's a good day. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our Advent series. Last week, we began and we talked about Jesus being sent and how it's an intentional thing, right? This wasn't like Jesus just happened to show up. Jesus was sent here. He was on mission here. Um, and he was sent, and last week we talked about him coming as the coming Lord and King. We talked about Jesus um, coming to rule and reign, and that there was coming this day when the countdown clock in heaven will be over, when he comes back to judge and to rule and to reign as King. And we talked about waiting. That's what this season is, right? That's what Advent's about, waiting. And how do we wait well? How do we wait well for this coming King? We talked about the fact that he has given us jobs to do. That for the Christian, we are to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And in doing those things, we're waiting well. In doing those things, we're being active with this time. We're not letting this time just pass us by and killing time until Christ comes back. But we have a job to do and we are engaging the world. Today, we're going to look at the words of the prophet Isaiah. We're going to talk about Jesus as the coming deliverer. We talked about him as the coming Lord. And now we're going to talk about him as the coming deliverer coming to deliver us out of something. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. There's a Bible around you if you don't have a Bible. Um, the word will be on the screen uh, as well, but it's good to have the text in front of you. Isaiah 40 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, and while you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of background on the prophet Isaiah and on the book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is pretty much, he is one of the biggest names in the Old Testament. As far as prophets go, he's pretty much the top of the list. And for years and years, Isaiah is proclaiming to the people of Israel, repent. Repent, turn away from your idolatry. Repent, turn away from your idolatry. Over and over again, Isaiah is telling the nation of Israel, look, a judgment is coming. Something is coming for you. There has to be retribution for your sin. There has to be punishment for your sins. And if you don't turn away, it's coming. And it's going to come in the form of people, outsiders, coming and taking you captive. And that's basically the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah is over and over again. Isaiah proclaiming, look, something is coming, and it's going to be bad if you don't repent. Please turn away. Isaiah ends with chapter 39, and it's basically telling Israel, look, the Babylonians are coming. And they're going to take you captive. And they're going to take your stuff. And you're going to be slaves. And you're not going to live in the land that God promised you anymore. These people are going to come and rule over you. And then we get to chapter 40. We get to today's passage. And chapter 40 looks forward. It's a prophecy. It's, it's looking forward to what's coming in the future. It's a break. It's a pause. And it's a word of hope from God and from Isaiah. What Isaiah is saying in chapter 40 is that, yes, there's going to be war, there's going to be exile, judgment is coming, but all is not lost. There is hope to be had. The word, God is sending you a deliverer. God is sending you one who is going to call you out of this judgment. It's not going to last forever. Yes, there will be pain. Yes, there will be sadness, but it won't last forever. So look with me at Isaiah 40. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, God, you are good. You are good all the time, even when it's scary and ugly and we don't understand why there are things in this world that happen the way they do. We do know and we can lean on and rest and trust that you are good all the time and that you are paying attention all the time and that you have a plan for us all the time. 
God, as we enter into this Advent season, as we spend this time waiting, as we spend this time focusing and thinking about what it was like for the Israelites to wait and what it's like for us to wait, God, help us to wait well. Help us to wait actively. Help us to not just let this time on earth pass us by, but rather let us engage and enter into the work you have called us to do. God, I thank you for giving us this place and this neighborhood where we can proclaim the gospel. Lord, we want to make much of you because you're good and awesome. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So let's jump in to Isaiah 40. We're going to start right at verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, God says. He says, Isaiah, I want you to tell them comfort. Give them comfort. Let them know that, yes, judgment is coming. Yes, it's going to get real hard and real ugly. But let them know that I'm paying attention. For Israel, Isaiah has told them that though the Babylonians are coming, it's not going to last forever. They might be in exile. They might be slaves. But God is paying attention. That God has a plan. He sees what's going on in the world. He sees what's going on in the world today. He sees the pain and the murder and the hate and the terrorism. He sees all of this and God is broken hearted by it. In this passage God says, speak comfort. Speak to their hearts. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. They mean speak to their hearts. Let them know that I'm broken hearted over this. Let them know that I see the pain that is getting inflicted on my people and it breaks my heart. God sees the things going on in this world today and he breaks his heart. What we know about God is that he sees these things and that he reminds us that he's paying attention. He reminds us over and over and in this passage he reminds us, look, I'm paying attention, I have a plan. You will be redeemed, you will be pardoned, and I will be glorified. God says, speak comfort to my people. He says, the warfare is ended. Isaiah is looking forward to past this time of the Babylonians. He says, the warfare is ended, the iniquity is pardoned. For Christians, the war against God is over. For Christians, we are no longer rebels against God. We are no longer identified as having iniquity, but we have been pardoned by God. And it says, not only have you been pardoned, but you have received double for all of your sins. Not only have you been pardoned, but you've been given in excess is a result to your sins. Through faith in Christ, we are not only forgiven for our sins and our rebellion, but in his death and resurrection, we inherit his righteousness. Okay, think of it this way. If you are in debt to someone, you're in the negative, right? You're in the red. And this person comes up to you and says, you know what? Instead of being in debt to me, I'm going to cancel your debt, and not only am I going to cancel your debt, I'm going to give you double what you owed me. So I'm going to take you from the red and not only bring you back to even, I'm going to bring you into the positive. That's what God is saying. That's what Isaiah is saying here is, look, you deserved so much. You deserved death. That's, the, that's the, what sin equals. Sin equals death. And so God says, you know what? You deserve this. I'm going to take you from being rebels, from being angry, from being at war against me, and I'm going to bring you not just so that we're neutral, but so that we're positive so that we have a relationship, so that you are my sons and daughters. 
Isaiah says, you have received double what you deserve. You have been brought into an excess. You have been brought into the positive by God. And so for us, for the Christians, this constant battle, the warfare is over, it says, this constant battle of trying to be good enough and smart enough and trying so desperately hard to win God's affection, that's over. You don't have to do that because it's not about you. Because it's not about what we can do. We can stop fighting that fight. But notice that this is not just God saying, look, I'm going to cancel your debt. Don't worry about it. It's all good. It's not just him letting us off the hook. Because if he did that, that would mean that God is fickle, that God changes his mind, that he is not just, and that he is not good. But rather, God says, i got a plan. And through Christ, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, that is how your sins are pardoned. That's how your iniquity is canceled out. Because we know that God is just and good and steadfast and true. And because of those things, he couldn't just say, you know what, never mind. Forget the debt. He says, no, the debt needs to be paid, and it's paid through Jesus. And so God says to Isaiah and to us, speak comfort to my people. Speak comfort to them. Let them know that a deliverer is coming. Look at verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way, get things ready for the Lord. This deliverer is coming. He is on his way. The road needs to be flat and even and steady and paved because the king's arrival is imminent. Think about it this way. When the president comes and the choppers fly overhead, you know, and he lands, has anybody ever been stuck? I got stuck on the Kennedy one time when Obama landed in O'Hare, and I was stuck on the Kennedy for like three hours because... What do they do? When the president comes, they clear the expressways. They clear Lakeshore Drive. He has got the smoothest, easiest place. He's not driving down Devon when it's full of potholes and cut down to one lane. He's taking cleared out spaces. It's easy and even and flat. It's the quickest point A to point B transfer. And so what this Isaiah is saying here is prepare a way. Make things as smooth and ready to go. This prophecy here is attributed to who? When you think about a voice crying in the wilderness, for those of you who grew up in church, who do you think of? John the Baptist. Yeah, no trick questions, I promise. John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, he, uh, he's, he, man, he's like the old school, last old school prophet. The prophets of the Old Testament had to do some weird stuff, and God called them to say and do and live some ex weird lives. Okay, and they didn't care what people thought of them. They didn't care what they looked like. They didn't care about what people said because they knew they had a job. Proclaim the word of God. And that was it. And John the Baptist is kind of the last of that breed. This morning um, at Pilsen, for those of you guys who know, our Advent series we're doing in conjunction with, our, with the church in Pilsen Community Church. Um, and Pastor Q is actually preaching Mark 1, 1 through 8, which is what Monica read this morning for us. And it's about John the Baptist. John the Baptist coming to prepare the way for Christ. All of the prophets throughout the, throughout the history of the Old Testament prepared the way for Christ. They all had their part in it, but none bigger than John. John the Baptist is the primary guy. 
And like I said, he is an old school prophet. He lived in the desert. I mean, crying in the wilderness, that was home for him. He wore a tunic made of camel hair, which is not, you know, the smoothest and nicest of clothing. And his diet was locust and honey. I mean, even by Old Testament standards, the dude was kind of weird. And he had one job. He didn't care what people said about him. He didn't care about what he looked like because he knew he had one job. Prepare the way for Christ. And he did so by preaching a very simple message. He preached, repent, be baptized. Repent, be baptized. Repent, be baptized. That was his driving force the whole time his ministry happened. And it's the same message that we preach today, right? Repent, be baptized. And John preached it to anybody. He didn't care. He preached to believers, non-believers, church folk, non-church folk. If you had ears and you were somewhere near John, he was going to tell you, repent and be baptized. To the non-believers, for us today to repent and be baptized, what does that message mean? For us, if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, you don't have a relationship with Christ, this message that John preached then and we preach today is simple. It's that realize you have sin in your life. That by nature, you have sin in your life. Your default mechanism is to rebel against God. That you, by your nature, are at odds with God. And it might not even, you might be able to sit there this morning and say, you know what, I'm a pretty decent person. I help people, I take care of people, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I haven't killed anybody. There's lots of people in this world worse off than me. I'm pretty good. But God says, no. By your very nature, you have sin. I, God says, I am perfect. That's the level I require, perfection. God says, your pride, your self-righteousness, your idolatry. Idolatry is something that we think of as like this old, weird, you know, it's an Old Testament thing, right? That's what Isaiah is preaching about. For those first 39 chapters, really what Israel is in trouble for is idolatry, putting anything before God. And Isaiah says, you have to repent of that. And this morning, we have to repent of that. When we put anything before God, whether that is your relationship, school, work, family, sex, drugs, TV, food, music, whatever it is. Idolatry still runs very, very rampant here in 2015 in Chicago. And an easy way to see, do I have a, what are, where are the idols in my life? Where are the things I'm putting in before God? Look at your time, look at your money. Where's your time going? Where's your money going? Those are going to be indicators of what are the most important things in your life. And so we all have those idols. We all have those things that we put, that we try and put before God. And God says, look, I'm going to make this real easy for you. Because of who I am, God says, because I am good and just, and I love you because I know you and I made you, I'm going to send my son to come and die for you. For the wages of sin is death. That's the, that's the, the, the rules that we're working under. You sin, you die. So God says, look, I'm going to send Jesus. He's not going to sin, but he is going to die. And he's going to die for your sins, for my sins. And so if you are not a believer this morning, if you don't have a relationship with Christ this morning, it is that simple. It's believe that his death makes it possible for you no longer to be identified as a rebel against God. But instead, you can be a son or daughter of God. John says, repent and be baptized. Baptism is something we still do today. It's not magic, right? We fill up the tank back here with water. But what it is, is it's a, it's a symbol. It's a gift to us from God. It's a way for us to publicly identify ourselves with God. 
It's a way for us to say, look, I have chosen God, because it's the second part of the message, right? It's repent, then be baptized. It says, look, I've repented of my sins. I've turned away from my sins. I no longer want to be a rebel against God. I want to be one of his children. And so in baptism, in the same way that Jesus died, he went into the ground, and he comes back up. In baptism, you go underwater, and you come back up. And through Christ's burial and resurrection, we're made clean. We're made right and perfect in the eyes of God. And so in baptism, you go underwater, and symbolically you come up and you're clean. It's a public declaration that says, I'm with Christ. I'm tired of trying to do this life on my own. I'm tired of trying to get by on my own good works. I'm going to identify myself with Jesus. It's a choice that you make. John says, repent and be baptized. But John didn't just deal with non-believers. He didn't just deal with people who were anti God. He dealt with the religious too. He got into a lot of fights with the religious people of the day. And to those people, he said the same thing. He said, repent. He said, those of you who are religious, repent of your religion. Repent of thinking that what you do somehow makes you better than the person next to you. Repent of the fact that you think that because you're in church every Sunday, because you give, because you take communion, because you're involved in Bible study, repent of the fact that you think that it makes you better than somebody else. Repent of the fact that you think that that might get you into a better spot in heaven. Repent of your religion, John would say to the Pharisees. Repent of thinking that you are better than the person next to you. Repent and be baptized. That is how John got people ready. That's how he prepared the way. This voice crying in the wilderness was repent and be baptized because somebody more important is coming. Somebody better than me is coming. Somebody is coming to deliver us. And today, they're still preparing to do, isn't there? Right? As we wait for his return, as we wait for the coming of Christ to come back again, there is preparing that needs to happen. There are mountains and hills that need to be lowered, valleys that need to be raised. And in my own life, the mountains of pride and arrogance, the mountains of trying to do everything on my own, thinking that I can get it all done by myself and in my own power, this is what God does. He makes you study a text during the week and he tells you, hey, this is something I need you to work on. Lower those mountains, Tim. Because it's not about me. It's not about the things that I think I can do on my own. It's about Christ and me leaning into his power. Me leaning into what he can do. There are mountains in all of our lives that need to be lowered. There are valleys that need to be raised. Man, our society today, through technology and this weird message of, you get yours. You go out and become as most popular and as and as um, as popular and as rich and as powerful as you can be, and you get this tunnel vision of all I got to do is work really, really hard, get as much money and get as much stuff as I can, and I will be successful. This valley has created this loneliness that we all dwell in between technology and this world of just do you. Don't worry about anybody else. We're lonely and isolated people, and that valley needs to get raised. There are things that need, there are ways that need to get straightened out, paths that need to get paved before Christ can come back. But once all of that is ready, once the way is prepared, once things are smoothed out, it says here, Isaiah says, all flesh shall see it together. All flesh shall see it together. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's a promise. That regardless of what you think, when Christ comes back, whether you are part of his family, whether you bow down and say, Christ, you're my Lord. Or you bow down and say, yeah, you really are the Lord, but you didn't 
believe, one way or the other, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. And it's no longer just for the Jewish people. Isaiah says all people are going to do this. No longer is this just for Israel. This is for all of us. That's what's so great about Christ's message. That's what's so great about the cross is it opens up this relationship with God to everyone. So how do we prepare the way? If there are these mountains that need to be lowered and these valleys that need to be raised, how in the world do we prepare the way? Note that I said, how do we prepare the way? It's not a me thing. It's not an elder's thing. It's not a those people who write books and do podcasts, the professional Christian thing. We, as the family of God, have a job to do. We have preparing to do. And how do we do that? We repent of the things in our life that distract us and destroy us, the things that get us off mission, the things that get us off the right path. And we proclaim the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. We were talking about this this morning. Every week there's a shooting. Every week there's a terrorist attack. Every week there's something. This world desperately needs the gospel. This world desperately needs to know that there is a message of hope out there. So what does Isaiah say to preach? What what does God say to preach? Look at verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All flesh is grass and flowers that wither and fade away. Isaiah says, God says to Isaiah, preach the fact that this time on this earth is short, that man is frail. Invest in something that's going to last. But today, in our culture, in 2015, especially during the holidays, that is the complete opposite message that we're getting preached at. This time of year, we're told to invest in stuff, money, Beauty products, toys, stuff, stuff, get, get, get. Sarah showed me an ad during Thanksgiving that was hashtag Thanksgiving. Like, we're not even hiding the fact that we're just taking the holidays and made it just about money and just about stuff. We're not even trying to pretend anymore. People are literally fighting over this season's new deal. We plan and we arrange our schedules around Black Friday about, okay, if you go to this store at 3 a.m., you go to this store at 4 a.m., we'll meet over at Target at 5 a.m. We try and strategize and have a battle plan for how to get our Christmas shopping done. And we put all of this time, all of this energy into getting, getting, getting. And yet Sunday morning comes and church on a Sunday becomes this flexible thing that may or may not happen. And even when it does happen, eh, being on time, being invested, eh, it may or may not happen. Cutting out time in my schedule to be part of a community group, to actually get invested in a group of people? We'll see. But I'll get in line at Best Buy at 3 a.m. for that flat screen. That's what this world is telling us. And what the Bible is saying is that all flesh is grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Josh McDowell um, He wrote this in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He was talking about the Bible, and he said, Written on material that perishes, having to be copied and recopied for hundreds of years before the invention of the printing press, 
This did not diminish its style, its correctness, nor its existence. The Bible, compared with any other ancient writings, has more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. We talked about this last week. This book has outlasted every doubter, every persecutor. It will outlast you, and it will outlast me. Doesn't that alone make it something we should be pursuing? Doesn't the fact that this is going to stand the test of time, that it already has, right? Let's not even assume it's going to last going into the future. Look at the fact that it's 2015, and it's still here. Doesn't that show that there's probably something useful to it? It's probably pretty powerful. It probably has some truth for us to learn and grow. And so are we pursuing the Word of God? Are we pursuing trying to know Him and know His Word in the same way that we're pursuing getting stuff in the holiday season? When we consider how to help prepare the way, when we consider how to try and be part of preparing the way for Christ's return during this Advent season, what do we do? What do we say? How do we, how do, we do that? It's right here. We talk about the words of the Bible. We talk about this message that we know that God is great, that God is good all the time. That's the point. That's what we should be pointing people to. Look with me at verse 9. Go up on a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah says, Go up on a mountain and shout that you have good news to bring. He says, Oh, Zion. You herald of good news. O Jerusalem, you herald of good news. O Christian fellowship, you herald of good news. We are called to be a beacon of light and hope in this neighborhood, in this city. And you know what? This time of year, man, it's one of those times of year where it is the easiest to talk about Jesus, to talk about Christ to talk about the good news that we know, because it's literally everywhere. We were talking about this on Thursday, um, which Thursday night, 7 p.m., there's a men's group that meets here right in this building. Gentlemen, Thursday, 7 p.m., we're studying the book of Acts. It's awesome. Anyway, during that meeting, we were talking about how the fact that we live in this crazy PC world, right? You can't talk about God in school. You can't carry a Bible in school. The Ten Commandments can't be anywhere near a courthouse. Like, it's getting crazy, where they're trying to take God out of everything. And yet, this time of year, from like the middle of November through the New Year, you can go into just about any store, any coffee shop, even the ones with the red cups, and you can hear Christmas music. And not just Christmas music. I'm not talking just about Rudolph and Frosty. I'm talking about Christian Christmas Theologically deep music. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. 
Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appears and the soul felt its worth. Everybody knows these lyrics. Everybody hums along while they're standing in line. Everybody turns on that station on the radio so they can hear Christmas music all year long. These are deep, theological, Bible-believing songs, and they are everywhere this time of year. Are we taking advantage of it? Everyone knows these lyrics. Isaiah tells them, go up on a mountain, not just a mountain, but go up onto a high mountain and proclaim the good news that you have. And he says, don't just say it. Not just with a regular voice. He says, lift up your voice with strength. Go onto a mountain, and with your voice lifted with strength, proclaim the good news you have. Now, obviously, you can say to me, well, Tim, we live in Chicago. We don't have mountains. There's not even a mountain in Illinois. I agree. But what we do have is that in like an hour, we're going to bundle up, we're going to go out onto the corner on Roscoe, and we're going to sing these songs. We're going to proclaim God's truth to people. You know what's going to happen? People are going to know these songs and probably sing along with us, or at least have it in their head, and nobody's going to freak out about it because these are Christmas songs that are everywhere all the time. This is the time of year where I know the idea of talking to people and sharing the gospel and like putting yourself out there is scary and hard. I get it, guys. I understand that. But this is the time of year where this stuff is everywhere. Like, there's no easier time to talk about the lyrics of Joy to the World, to talk about the fact that Christ has come. Isaiah says, go find a mountaintop. Because back then, they didn't have technology. You stand on a mountaintop, proclaim, more people are going to hear it. We're in 2015. We have social media. You can proclaim something on social media, and everybody can hear it. That's a mountaintop. Going to your boss and saying, look, you know what? Sundays are non-negotiables for me. i got to be in church. One day of the week is a non-negotiable for me. i got to be in community group. i got to be connected with the people that I'm doing life with. That's a mountaintop. Finding those times where you can say, look, I got good news and I want you to know about it and the way I live my life is a way that I'm going to tell you about it. Isaiah says, find a mountaintop, proclaim the good news. And then he says, look, behold, your God comes. Verse 9 says, behold, he's coming. Behold means stop, pay attention. If you haven't been listening to me for the last 39 chapters, if you haven't been listening to me for the last 24 minutes, pay attention. Your God approaches. Your king is at hand. The deliverer approaches. The one you've been doing this planning, the one you've been doing this work for, he's coming. And he's coming with might and compassion. It says he comes with might and an arm to rule. He comes to judge and put an end to sin, put an end to death, put an end to these things that we have to deal with. But he also comes to be just and to be righteous. Right, we saw in verse 1 and 2, he comes to pardon our iniquity, but he also comes to judge and condemn those who choose not to follow him. 
It says he brings his reward with him. His reward is the fact that we're going to be gathered. His people are going to be gathered together. We're going to spend eternity with our God. He brings his reward. He brings the fact that he is gathering up his sons and daughters. And it says he comes to inspect his work, the recompense before him. We are his work. Ephesians 2 says we are his good work created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're his masterpiece is what the word in Ephesians says. We're his masterpiece created to do good works that he laid out ahead of time. That's how God sees you, his masterpiece. The ultimate creator of all existence who spoke and things happened, he sees you as his masterpiece. And so he comes back, his recompense before him, his work before him. How do we do with what he called us to do and be? How do we do with the gifts and talents that he gave us? How do we use those? How have we done to responding to the truth of his word? And Isaiah says he's going to tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Because Jesus is the good shepherd. And we are the sheep. And what the shepherd does is he takes care of his dumb, helpless sheep. Sheep are some of the dumbest animals out there. The job of the shepherd back then was a hard one. You were on call all the time because you had to be paying attention because the sheep were dumb. They were so dumb that you had to tend them, which means you had to lead them to a pasture and they had to watch them eat. Because eventually they would eat through the grass and they would get to like the thorns and the dust and stuff and that would make them sick. So you would have to wait until they ate the right amount and then tend them and lead them to another pasture because they didn't even know when they should and shouldn't eat or what they should and shouldn't eat. And it says the Lord is going to tend us. He's going to take care of us. He's going to lead us to the good food. He's going to lead us to the stuff that gives us nutrients. We are to be dependent on God and his leading, just like sheep are dependent on their shepherd. But it also says he's tender and he's kind. He's the good shepherd. He is the great Lord of lords and king of kings. And when he comes back, he comes back to rule and to reign. But he's also the deliverer and the tender shepherd. It says he's going to carry the lambs. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, this is what he said about this passage. He said, to carry is kindness, but to carry in the bosom is loving kindness. The shoulders are for power and the back is for force, but the bosom is the seat of love. You see, yes, he is coming to rule and reign, but God also knows when to be tender with Right? For those of you who have had kids or those of you who have kids, if one of the little ones falls, you don't pick her up and throw her over your shoulder. No, man, if she stumbles, she stumbles and falls and is crying, you're going to carry her right here. Carry her close to you. That's what he says. He says, look, he's the good shepherd. There are times when life is hard and you're beat up and you skin your knee and you fell and you feel like you cannot move another five feet. Those are the times the good shepherd's going to come in and he's going to carry you. He's going to carry you right here. He's going to take care of you. He's going to let you know that he is there to provide and to comfort and to protect you. He knows when to be tender. He knows how to best lead and take care of you. Spurgeon went on to say about this passage, he says, I see the Lord of angels condescending to personal labor here. 
Jesus Christ himself gathers with his own arm and carries in his own bosom the lambs of his flock. He does not commit this work to an angel, nor does he even leave it to his ministers, but he himself, by his spirit, still undertakes it. The good shepherd comes down and lives this life. He gets messy in this world. And even still today, he is the good shepherd and he will carry us when we need to be carried. He will take care of us and be tender with us when he needs to. You see, in Advent, we celebrate and remember the waiting that God's people did, that they longed for this king, right? They prayed like this. This prayer in Isaiah, this prophecy from Isaiah, this is how they thought all the time. This is how they felt all the time. They thought this way. They prayed this way. God, come. God, save us. God, tear open the heavens and come down, please. And eventually, he shows up. He showed up. He entered the world. Jesus enters the world as a baby and dwells with his creation. And just like Moses, right? Moses delivers God's people from slavery in Egypt. In the Old Testament, God heard the cries of his people and he sends Moses to deliver them from slavery. In the same way, Jesus came to deliver us from slavery. Not the slavery to the Romans that the Israelites were under at the time, but the slavery to sin that we are all under by nature. No longer are we forced to do battle against God, but now we can let Jesus deliver us from sin, be our good shepherd, and guide us and tend to us, and when we need it, carry us. Christ, our deliverer, started this whole work at the cross. He makes it possible for us to have a right relationship with God at the cross. And he continues to be our deliverer because we wait for him to return. When he returns, he will deliver us from this from dealing with a world where you turn on the news and it breaks your heart. He's going to deliver us from this broken and dark and ugly world. And so now we stay awake. We wait. And we stay awake. And we work to make this path straight because, guys, the deliverer is coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for gathering us together to celebrate you. God, we know you are the kind of God who we can trust, we can depend on, we can rely on. We know that you are faithful and that you keep your promises. You promise that you're sending your son to come back. You promise that he's going to come to reign and rule, not to suffer and serve. He's going to come and he's going to judge He's going to put an end to sin and wickedness. God, we are so thankful. And God, in this Advent season, we are called to wait. We are called to longingly expect that day to come. And Lord, we do. God, we cry out. We see terrorist attacks in Paris and in California and all over the place. We see shootings in our own streets. We see these things and we cry out, God, come. God, just show up already. Put an end to this already. But God, at the same time, We each know we have people in our lives. There are people in this world who don't know you. Or there are people in this world who don't have a relationship with you. And God, we pray that you patiently wait until those people have the chance to know you, to hear the good news of the gospel, to hear that you have sent your son once already to save us. God, we eagerly await your return. But at the same time, God, we we pray that you 
change those hearts because you were patient enough to call us. God, in this Advent season, we know we are called to wait. Help us to wait well. Help us to wait actively. Help us to have the boldness to proclaim the good news that that we know, to shout it from our mountaintop. Lord, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done, and what you continue to do. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.